Mark chapter 14, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Let me say something really quick. Uh, there are times when I speak and sometimes I have foot and mouth syndrome. Um, anybody have foot and mouth syndrome? So I'm not alone. Uh, it, oh, wow, this is going to be a long sermon. Last week I said something and I should not have said it. I said that I do not like political moderates. Uh, knowing that some of you are probably identifying as political moderates. Uh, here's the reality. I don't understand that stance, um, but I do like you, okay? And I, I don't just like you. I may love you. I don't know. That's, that may be a stretch. But anyway, uh, it was insensitive, and I apologize. What my hope is is that you didn't uh, leave here with, well, the pastor just said, you know, this, because the idea surrounding that was about Christianity and moderation. As in fact, we were talking about as the woman with the alabaster jar is, was extreme, it was extreme action, devotion, extreme worship. And Christ did not call us into some kind of nominal, moderate Christianity. And that, and that, my, my sincere hope is that that is what you heard because in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as a moderate Christian or someone, and what I, what I mean by that, what I mean by moderate is someone who is nominal, okay? And, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but someone who is Christian in name only. Because if you remember, this was the problem because of Judas, right? And this is the problem we're going to see in our text today, that there are people who identify themselves as Christians but the reality of it is, is that they are Christian in name only. I'm uh, digressing and I'm getting back into that sermon. I am going backwards, Kim, uh, and it's all because of you. But anyway, uh, but with that phrase, I apologize. That was, that was truly insensitive on my part. And if you hang around me, and I don't say this in a, I don't say this in a narcissistic kind of egotistical way. I just say this because I'm a human, and there will be times when I say things that I will go sit over there in the corner every single Sunday, and I will say to myself, what in the heck did I just say? And if you do this week after week, you would do the same thing. And it happens, I apologize, move on, let's go, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I meet the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a larger, a large upper room furnished already there and prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, verse number 17. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, notice this right here, because this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time together. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, and they began to be sorrowful. Watch this. Now watch what happens. And to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, 
It is one of the 12. In fact, watch what he says. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And let's one more time just go before the Lord over the reading of his words. So, Father, we just come to you one more time asking you just to help us, God. God, some of us may have been coming here this morning, perhaps, looking for a word, looking for direction, looking for your voice to speak to them, God. I thank you, Lord, that the audible word of God just spoke to us through your word, God. So let your word be a light into our path, Lord. Let your word sharpen us. Let your word conform us more into the image of Christ, our Savior. That when we leave here, we would all be able to collectively say, Look how glorious our Christ the King is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you knew one of your closest friends was going to betray you, and not only just betray you, but also turn you over for, for some change, to have you arrested, have you murdered, have you crucified, the question that one of the questions that's presented here to us is, would you invite them? And I think the resounding answer is, are you crazy? I, I mean, if you knew someone was, if you knew, like you had the proof in the pudding that somebody's going to come over to your house, betray you, have you arrested, that would lead to a criminal's death, would you have them over for dinner? No. And so that's going to be a question that we're going to be addressed with here in a moment that we see here. And I don't think you would, but for some reason or another, Jesus does. Now, Jesus has given his disciples the instructions on what to gather, where to go, go do this, go do this. So in the context of that we are in is Passover. And it's no ordinary meal, if you know your, your, your Bible. The Passover is no ordinary meal. In fact, it's a recollection of, um, of, of this anticipation of this Messiah who is going to come. It is also a recollection of uh, what had happened to the Jewish people uh, in the past who had led out of slavery. And so Jesus, within this context of Passover, and if we can identify this as Jesus being the host and the disciples perhaps being the guest, Jesus invites them into a meal and he makes this dramatic statement and he says, one of you, in fact, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus makes this announcement in verse 18 as they're reclining, as they're, they're eating. In fact, as they are dipping their bread into the bitter sauce, Jesus says to this, these disciples, one of you will betray me. Now that in the context of who are these 12? Well, they're friends. They're close. There's a camaraderie among these 13 people. It's, it's disciples following after their teacher. And Jesus says to the friends, to his followers, right here in this, this, this upper room, one of you is going to betray me. Now, apparently, there's no obvious 
suspect. And you can go and read Luke's account, Matthew's account, John's account of this. There's no likely suspect because we see here from what John says, you know, it, it looks like they're all in the dark because what? It's, they grow sorrowful and they begin to ask the question, well, is it I? Is it me? What, am I going to be the one that betrays? And so the room kind of gets in, in the air. There is the sense of betrayal. There's a sense of anxiety. There's a sense of this tension that's beginning to grow that if there's just 12 of you and Jesus says one of you is going to do the betraying and if you don't think it's you then you start playing the game in your head well is it this guy well it's got to be Peter because he's got a mouth on him well it's got to be you know John you know because he's the beloved of Jesus right he's the favorite and so there's going to be like this twist of events that John's going to betray Jesus well maybe it's this one and so there's this tension in the air that's, that's kind of beginning to unfold in the drama. Because if you remember, when we read this text, we know who the betrayer is, right? Don't nobody name their child Judas. Come on. You know why? I mean, I call my son Judas when he's in trouble, but we, because it has the stigma to it, right? Oh, so you're going to name your son Judas the betrayer? Like, is that how you want to be marked in life? We know the unfolding of the story because we've read this story many times. We know this is during Passion Week. We know the one who betrayed Jesus for, a, you know, some money just so he could appease to his sinful pride and greed. It was Judas. But it, it, they're, they're in the dark. They don't know. The story is dramatically unfolding before them. And so they don't know the answer to the question that we know the answer to. Jesus looks at them and says to them in this dramatic turn of events, in this room where they are dining, in this room where they are uh, uh, conversating and talking and doing what friends do, Jesus drops a bomb on them and says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And they can't believe it. They say, well, is it me? Is it, uh, it can't be me. It's, I mean, it, who is this? And then if you, and if you look, what happened was Jesus kind of feathers the tension along a little bit and he gives them the answer without giving them the answer because that's how Jesus always does the answering. He gives you an answer that you didn't expect. And so his answer is, well, I'll tell you who it is. It's the one who's dipping his bread into this bitter sauce. Now, if you understand, if you can unpack this idea of the Passover meal, you know that there, what the, the sauce is, it is dried fruit, it has bitter herbs in it, and it's this bitter sauce because it represents this bitter error of time for when the Jews were under captivity, and it's always this reminder of, this was what I was in, and this is what God has led me out of, so this bitter sauce then is this representation of bitterness, of a hard time, of a hard past. And, and Jesus, isn't this interesting? And Jesus looks at him and says, I tell you who it is. It's the one who is dipping his bread into this bitter sauce. It's the one who's dipping this bread into the sauce that represents nothing but pain and a painful past. And so this is the context, and we know that this is this, so around this idea of, celebra of Passover celebration. Pretty clear, right? 
This is our context that we have to deal with. Many sermons been preached on this, but I'm going to try to do my best to maybe uh, enlighten us a little bit. Maybe enlighten us a little loose, but uh, maybe just try to help us in this to identify some things within our own lives uh, that we could see here. Now, if if we if we recall what we just left and what we've kind of been uh, in, involved with in the text is that the last room they were in was Simon the leper's room. And, and if, you, if we could just kind of, uh, I don't know, flesh that out just a second in that what that represented was it was a seat of devotion, a seat of worship, a seat of this is what following Christ looks like. And then the next story flips dramatically. And now we're, we're kind of in laser focus of this is what deep-seated corruption looks like. This is what nominally following Christ looks like. This is what a, a, a person who says they follow Christ and is a Christian in name only looks like. So it's a pretty dramatic flip, right? If, if we were all honest about this text. So I've got just like maybe five things and I'll go through these pretty quickly. Um, and that's probably a lie. I don't know, but we'll try to get through this as fast as we can. And there's just a few things that I want to just kind of tease out of this and try to make our way through. When Jesus is saying, and here's the first thing, when Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me, the first thought that I come up with is sort of this self-examination. You see what happens to the disciples? The room grows thick. They become sorrowful. And what's the question that they ask? Is it I? What is that question? I, I love like asking questions with questions. So what do you mean by this? What is this? So what is, so what is the question that the question really represents? Right? I'm, I'm going to chase to find out what is really happening in the text and what they're doing when they say, is it I? This is self-reflection. And this is Okay. Self-reflection is good, right? And who is causing the self-reflection, the self-examination? Jesus is causing them to have this sudden change of being celebratory in nature to now self-reflection in nature. So the temperature of the room just got a little hotter up in there. In fact, if we read Luke's account, the self-reflection turns into, well, who will be the greatest? Who's going to come on top? Who's going to come out on top of the pile? So in a sense, self-reflection is good, but then they kind of turn it into something that's a little bit of unhealth when they start to compare each other with this idea of who's going to be the greatest. And you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking through this, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and they respond with this self-examination type question, I think of Paul and when he talks about the, the, the order of the sacraments of communion. You think back in 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 11, for that whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body of and blood of the Lord. Then verse 28 uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says, let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself. 
It's the same phrase that Paul uses yet again in 2 Corinthians uh, 13 in verse 5. And he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. In other words, Jesus, in my view of this, is drawing his disciples towards some form of self-examination. And it is in here that this form of examination leads to some form of superficial presumption. Because at this point, what this identifies to us is that you can't come in here and say, well, I come to the Sunday service, so I'm in the faith. Well, the disciples couldn't say at this point when Jesus says this, just because I'm in this group, I'm in the faith. The disciples couldn't say, just because I heard all of Jesus' sermons, I'm safe. At this point, what this reveals to us is that just because we say that we are one thing, that doesn't mean we are in the faith. And what that ought to do is spur within us a type of healthy self-examination. Am I rooted in Christ? Am I trusting that it is Christ and Christ alone that my salvation is secure through? Because if Jesus is causing this self-examination with people he was physically doing life with, teaching uh, around all the time, then I would just press on us just a little bit and suggest that perhaps Jesus is doing the same thing for us this morning, causing us to peel back some layers in our life and ask the tough questions. Have I been trusting in myself? Have I been trusting in my own righteous works? Have I been trusting in my mom's faith? Have I been trusting in my parents' faith? Or am I trusting in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation? And this causes us to do some self-examination. And not only that, but it also exposes that, the idea of this nominal Christianity. And it's, <laughs> the life of Judas, I have to be honest with you, it's so confusing. And if, and if, and if you, <laughs> I don't know how it's not confusing, I guess. I don't understand it. That you could be walking with Christ, you could see Christ, you could touch Christ, you could hear the word of God speak to you, and yet how is it that it does not penetrate your soul so deeply that you want to be reconciled to him? He walked with him, he saw him, he saw the miracles, he saw everything, he saw Jesus perform acts that only God can do. And it ought to be a reminder to us that just because we come to church, just because, well, I can recite the Apostles' Creed. Well, good for you. You want a trophy? Well, I can recite John 3.16. Well, I can say the Lord's Prayer. Well, I can do this. You see the problem, right? It's, well, I, 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 I. And what happened is, is that you were a Christian in name only, and you are not 
resting in, resting on the salvation of Christ. And perhaps this is what we have happening with Judas here. I mean, he's, he's so far, he hasn't had a good rap, right? I mean, we see Jesus, or Judas rather, um, complaining about money. Well, what she should have done, well, automatically he's in the wrong because he's shooting, right? Don't should. Have I told you all that before? Stop shooting on people. And so here's Judas, shooting on Jesus. What she should have done, shooting, should, all right? Just want to be clear. I didn't say the other thing, all right? That would, yeah, be, anyway, um, why is she wasting all this money? You know I mean, people she could have, you know I mean, poor people she could have fed. So he doesn't have a good rap. And so what we see here is that a man can, can be with Jesus, can see all the miracles of Jesus, can witness all the things of Jesus, yet can be so far from him. This is why Paul implores the people, be reconciled to Christ. Right? He's not like, you know, you just want to like play around with it, you know, or just test Jesus. Or if, you know, you sign up on the dotted line for Jesus and you do like a test trial version of him. Like that is so ridiculous. Try Jesus. Chapter and verse, please. You know why that's, because that's not in the Bible. You don't try, it's an imploration. Be reconciled to Christ lest you find yourself like Judas who can come to the Sunday gathering, who can listen to every sermon and yet have a disconnect between his heart and Christ because he did not be reconciled to his Lord. Now, so we have an opportunity to do some self-examination and that's a good thing. We also see that it is very possible for people to say they're Christian and be Christian in name only. But then what I want you to see is this glorious view of the sovereignty of God. Now, I, I don't want to, this is a this is a really good one, and I don't want us to miss this. And so what this text does is it does also confront us with this idea of the sovereignty of God. And we're like, well, how did you get the sovereignty of God? Out of this. Well, I'm so glad you asked because I'll show you now. Because now, when he says, For the Son of Man goes, look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is what? Written. That's how we say it in the South. Written. As it is written. In other words, that from all eternity, that God has been formulating himself for himself a people. And how would he gather this people to himself? Through the atonement of Christ, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Listen to me. This is through his sovereignty. It had been prophesied from the Old Testament. It had been foretold through the Old Testament. And then, I mean, unless you've been sleeping, this whole theme of Mark the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's now. It's tangible. He is here in the flesh to set his domain. 
And it has been foretold for all eternity. And it has been the plan of God that he would reconcile himself for himself a people. And how he does that is through the work of the cross of Christ. And so we see this beautifully written out for us, spelled out very articulately here for us. It is in the sovereignty of God that it was the plan of God all along to send the son, to send Christ, the word made flesh among us that he would die he would, and he would bring for himself a people through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus says that the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. This is why he's doing this because he's showing us, giving us a glimpse of God and his sovereignty and, God, and what God has been up to all along. Contrary to what you may think, the death of Christ was not God's plan B, okay? You guys understand that? It, just, it wasn't plan B. You think that anybody is good enough to kind of do a little trickery with God so that he's just kind of up there, just kind of fumbling around. Oh no, what am I going to do? They, they got, they, they, they pulled one on me now. So now it's on you, Jesus. Now, now we've got to do plan B. Like, let me, let me help you out this morning. In fact, what this ought to do, let you breathe, baby. You ain't that good. You cannot outwit the creator of the universe and then like all of a sudden make him go fumbling up in the heavens thinking, well, now we got to do plan B because plan A didn't work. And I think a lot of times that's what we think. Well, well, what about the garden of Eden, right? Well, it sure was Adam and Eve. They did a lot of trickery with God. No, from all eternity, this was God's plan. Because I know this because there's no other greater act of love than him sending his son to die on your behalf. Your creation was not God's greatest act of love. I hate to break it to you. And I know some of you are like, you walk in here this morning, you're like, man, God made me. You looked in the morning in the mirror this morning, you said, God, you did a really good job. And you have this idea, I was plan A. No. His love for us, that he would die as us on our behalf. That was the plan A. And so we see this intertwined in the scripture of a man who betrayed Jesus. And the text is clear to us that this was God's plan all along. That God would come as man, he would die. And, in, and, and how that's going to play itself out is that one of you will betray me. And you will turn me over. And the good news of this that Jesus presents to us is chill out. It's okay. It's been my plan all along. That for all eternity, as it is written. And that is, that is a beautiful view of the sovereignty of God. That an all-powerful God cannot be taken by surprise. Isn't that, I mean, just think about that thought for just a second. Think about the thoughts of you and all the trauma you may have been going through 
in all the surprises that life has thrown your way, right? Because certainly if you've been alive for more than 10 years you've, or five or you're an infant, you know that there are surprises around every corner that you walk. And the good news of the Bible and the God of the Bible is that he has not been surprised by one thing. That for all eternity, he has been gathering to himself for himself, a people. And the plan was to become like us. And the plan was, is that one of you will betray us. It's a cool little thing to rest in, in the sovereignty of God. That he is the sovereign one, we are not. And so not only does this kind of show us the self-examination that we ought to do, or maybe this reality of nominal Christianity, and the beauty of the sovereignty of God, but it also places a great deal of blame on the responsibility of the action of the sinner. And we know this. We know who the sinner is. It's Judas, right? This dude been a sinner for quite some time. And I've already pointed this out to us. He's been a greedy thief. He wanted that money for himself. He's already been concocting a plan to meet with the religious leaders that would uh, kind of set this whole thing in motion. He had a desire. He had been tempted. And he had an opportunity. And let me just throw this out there for our benefit. That when desire, temptation... An opportunity, join forces, you better watch out. Because you may not be tripped up if desire and temptation is there. You may not be tripped up if maybe temptation and opportunity. But make no mistake, what happens here to Judas is that desire, temptation, an opportunity, lock hands together, and you have to be aware of that in your own life, that if there is a desire for something sinful, and if I'm being tempted into that desire, and if I have led myself into the opportunity, then what you have just done is placed yourself in a very damning, damning position. And we see this played out right here. And who was to blame for this? Well, Judas had a hard life. Right? Isn't that what we hear? Well, you don't know their life. You know, they just, it was rough. You know, just had a tough life. And, you know, it's all because his mom. It's all because his dad. You know, he's got father issues. All because their siblings were crazy and we were the same one. You know, okay, if you want to believe that's fine, whatever. Come see me, we'll find you some therapy. But anyway, so we, we have this presumption that, well, it's always someone else's fault that causes me to sin. And you cannot look at Judas and say, well, it was the devil's fault. No, he'd been this way his whole life. Likewise, and if again, we're going to do some self-examination, we have to examine our own hearts and say to ourselves that the root cause of my sin isn't because of what someone else did to me. No, what did Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? The universal indictment, you, 
were dead in your sins. Not your mama, not your papa, not your grandma, you. It's the indictment here that when we look at the life of Judas, we can't look at this and say, well, the devil, it was just the devil, the devil, the devil, the devil. You give the devil way too much credit than he deserves. No, boo, you, you have sinned and are alienated outside of Christ. And so here's what this text is doing to us, that there is a responsibility on the action of Judas for what takes place. Now, we do know that in another uh, section of this that it says that the devil entered into Judas, but you can't look at that and say, well, well, that's the reason why. No, he is already concocting this in his own heart. And so then I want to go back to how I started this whole thing here and, and then just land us down on this massively high plane, if I can, is ask the question, and it's going to perhaps lead your mind to some mysterious land of why, right? Unless you've been snoozing, that should be the question that we, I just should it on you, I apologize. This ought to be, which is the same thing, just sounds a little bit more fancy, be a question that comes to mind when we read this text. In fact, if you read your Bible, it is a question that you would probably ask quite often. Why? Right? Why not, if Jesus is going to die... Why not save Judas and just go turn himself in? You know, I think back the story of, of throughout the Bible, the story of Israel. I, I got a lot of whys. God, why did you pick these people? Now, that's not anti-Semitic language. That's language because of all of the murmuring, all of the complaining, all of them pointing to, I'd rather have a king than God. And so it obviously ought to lead us to a question of, then why is God doing it like this? And you know the answer? I don't know. If you have come here waiting for me to unravel some of the mysteries of the Bible then you've come to the wrong place because that's not what I know how to do. What I do know is from Deuteronomy 29 is that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Isn't that an interesting thought? That God has secrets and that there are mysteries that we just don't know about? Isn't that interesting? Now, I'll leave that to you uh, to ponder on, on your sleep tonight. You'll thank me later. Probably not. But, but think about it, though. Don't you keep things from your kids for their good? You ought to. That was my child. You, you keep things from people because in one respect, it is, it, it, it's helpful for them not to know. And likewise, we have a father who for some reason that just we don't know the answer to this question. We know that it was a part of the plan that in his sovereignty, he had written this thing out a long time ago. And then that's what we're left with and that's all that we need to know. And then lastly, what this does is it relieves us with a reality of what happens when you don't repent. Now, no, listen, the, I, we've talked about hell before, okay? We, 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 were, we were 
forced into the conversation of hell because as we go through Mark's gospel line by line, it, it, it causes us to address things that some of us may not want to, to address. And, t- and listen, totally, I get it. You think I want to come up and say, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to write a sermon on hell. If you find the pastor that enjoys talking about hell, may I just lovingly tell you to leave. If every single sermon that I speak on is today, we're going to talk about hell. Today, we're going to talk about hell. Today, we're going to talk about hell. And if there's this kind of snarky, joyous um, way to it, because when I grew up in church, it was almost like they were excited to talk about hell. You never ought to be excited about talking about eternal damnation and separation from God. So when we approach that, when I approached it months ago, I can't remember how long ago, it's like years ago, on this topic and this reality of what happens when you don't repent, what it ought to do is cause a, a sort of sense of sorrow among us and almost a sense of anxiety among us, a, a, a sense of sadness and a sense of urgency among us. Listen to what Jesus says, woe to him it would have been better off if he just wasn't born. That's a strong statement from Jesus. That's one of those that I would put in the category of Jesus just said, what? Right? Because we love the sayings of Jesus. We love all the things that he does. I love teaching on when Jesus heals the outcast, when Jesus is reconciling people, when Jesus is going out and, and ministering to people. Like, I love those stories. I love how Jesus goes to the woman at the well whom no one else would touch, but Jesus would go. I love the story of Jesus going to the leper who was the outcast. But I'll be honest with you, I have troubles with some of these hard sayings of Jesus. But we have to approach it lightly, right? Because in a sense, what Jesus is saying here, woe to the man who uh, would be just better off if he weren't born. What's Jesus saying? He's lost. He's lost. Judas would go on to commit suicide and he would not spend eternity with his creator. But instead, what is Judas? He's lost forever. He's lost. He's gone. He's, he's not just like, you know, dissolved away. No, he is eternally lost. And so when we tread this idea and this reality of afterlife, a reality of hell, shouldn't that just cause a little sense of sorrow and a sense of mourning among us and also a sense of urgency? Like what C.S. Lewis said, he said that the reality, what the reality of hell ought to do is, is, is think of it like this, that no one will go to hell without tripping over the cross of Christ and his saints. Think about that phrase for just a moment. That no one ought not go to hell without tripping over you and I without tripping over and wrestling through the cross of Christ. And if they do, it's because that was their choice they made. And if they do go to hell, they're going to go and they're going to trip over you 
they ought to trip over me. They ought to trip over and wrestle and struggle and labor on the thought of the cross of Christ. That brings a more sombering idea of that reality of hell to us. Jesus says he's, law, he's gone, no more. He will not be in my presence. Jesus talks about hell quite a lot, if you want to be honest and frank about it. When he's, what he's talking about, many will say to me in that day, Lord, did I do this? Lord, did I do that? And you know, I was a good kid. I, I, you know, I, I, I was... Here we go again. I was the nominal Christian. I went to Sunday service, and, and, I, and I, I, went, I, did, I did mission. I did all these things. And Jesus is going to look at some of these people and say, you know what? I didn't know you. Depart from me. Depart from me. Where? Depart from my presence. Depart from me in eternity without me. Depart from me into an eternity in hell. Listen, this is not a very popular thing to preach, but it is the word of the Lord, and it causes us, again, hear me, to do some self-reflection and think about the people in our own lives and think about the neighbors, think about uh, the people you work with who are lost and are without Christ. Those people better not go to hell unless it was their choice and they are tripping up over you. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jude says you snatch them out by their ankles, basically. Snatch, don't let them go to the utter darkness. Snatch them. I love that language that Jude uses. That ought to be the call for us. And when we see this and when we hear Jesus, his own words, that it just would better be that if he wasn't even born, that that ought to cause some kind of sombering tone among us and think about the people in our own lives that we're saying, well, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll, I'll share the gospel with them tomorrow. I'll, I'll share my testimony. I'll do all these things tomorrow. And again, I have to press on you. And I say this often is that tomorrow is Satan's favorite word. And if he can get you to buy into that idea, you could do it tomorrow. Then you'll never do it. And that person, if they go to hell, will not trip over you. So we have this presented to us in this text. And if I could just summarize all of this, is a self-examination. If Jesus steps into the room, in the upper room, and he says to them, one of you are going to betray me, that causes um, some self-reflection among the 12. If Jesus were to physically step into this room, and he says to one of us, and he says to all of us, one of you will betray us, my prayer is that you would say, not me, Lord. Have I trusted in Christ? There's the question right there. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you trusted in his grace? Because there's the hope that Christ is enough. Will I trust in that? Will I trust that Christ is enough because he is our hope? And that is the only hope for humanity.